Uh, This morning we're going to be in Joshua chapter 3. Go ahead and get your Bibles warmed up. As we do, I'm going to uh, play a video. Now, there's no sound to this. This comes from 1944, all right? It's about a minute long. I want you to watch it very carefully and then tell me, well, don't tell me, but, but figure out what you're looking at here, what you see. Let's go ahead and play it. Now, if I said, okay, what did you see in that? <laughs> some of you are going, nothing. Uh, some of you are going, uh, a couple fighting because of a mistress. Some of you might say, two guys fighting over a girl. Some might say, one kid excluded from the others. Some of you might say, father, mother, child, and one of them's an alcoholic, maybe abusive. The correct answer is, it means nothing. It was an experiment that was done by psychiatrists by the name of Heidler and Simmel back in 1944. And they put that video together and noted as they asked people a variety of different things because they did it completely at random. Uh, They just simply played with triangles and shapes and stuff all over the screen. That people would apply meaning based on what they'd experienced in their life. And so even though there was actually no significance to it whatsoever, they found significance in the nothing. And our propensity then to, I guess you could use the term project, is important. When you come to the Bible, and you read the Bible, right? Uh, there's a tendency for us to read a story like the one we're going to read today and to project something onto it that's not there. Uh, in seminary, they, they use the term eisegesis. Exegesis is to draw out of the text. Eisegesis is essentially to add to the text or to project onto the text or add to the text. When you read this story today, most of the times I've heard it preached, you, you, it's all about overcoming obstacles. And, uh, you know, you're going to face the bank of the Jordan River, and when you do, God's going to part the sea for you, or he's going to part the river, and you're going to walk right through. But I want to suggest to you something differently with this little caveat in mind, which is going to slightly depress you at first. But I'm going to suggest to you that long term, it's good news for us. Okay? In general, when we interpret the Bible, uh, a good rule of thumb is it rarely means for us what it never meant for them. Okay? So when you come to a text like this, the first step in applying things is to go, okay, why is this in here? What did God actually do then? And only then do you then take that step forward. So in this case, if you're watching that video, the question would be, should be, okay, what were they trying to portray in the video? And then once you figure that out, then you can kind of go, oh, you know, when I saw it, I kind of reminded me of X and Y and Z. It used to be in the old days, I can remember uh, when I was first buying Bibles, maybe in the mid-80s, when I first bought my own Bible with my own money. Uh, I can remember going to the, they had this thing called the Bible Bookstore, Lighthouse Christian Bookstore in Long Beach, California. I would go in, and basically the only choice you had was the version of the Bible. You might pick a King James, you might pick a, uh, I think the New King James had just come out. I think it was 80, 82 or so the New King James came out. NIV came out in 78, the first version of it. Um, and then you had uh, the Living Bible, I think had just come out, some other things. And so you would go in, and all you would do is just pick the translation, which is more about reading level and, and that kind of stuff. Now, those of you who have ever been to a, uh, some of you will never go into one because Christian bookstores are going by the wayside. But if you were to go in there now, there is a Bible for virtually every demographic on earth. It's not just translations, it's um, the men's Bible, the women's Bible, the, the Bible for chihuahuas, the Bible for, for girls between the ages of 18 and 18 and a half, 
the Bible for, for all of these different things, right? And you go through, and it gets nichier and nichier and nichier, and there's nothing wrong with that. So if you've got one of those Bibles, there's nothing inherently wrong with it, as long as you understand that when you read a story like the one we're going to read today, don't bring your own story to it first. Let's ask the question, what did God do here? What was the point of him doing it this way, the way that he did? And once we kind of nail that down, then... We'll kind of pull the applications out, okay? So we're going to take it a bite at a time so that we don't get too far ahead of ourselves and watch the whole video and go, oh, we're going to kind of freeze the frame about every uh, three or four verses, okay? I'm going to make <clears throat> that statement right there kind of the crux of everything that goes on this morning, that God gives our story meaning. We don't add meaning to God's story. Uh, God's story has intrinsic worth and intrinsic meaning, but my story then, when I look at my life, the story of what God has done among his people over the years becomes something that adds great value and meaning to my own story. And so even though we tend to, as human beings, have a need to find meaning where none really exists, we also have a tendency to miss meaning where we think there isn't any. So wherever we go and whatever we do, God gives meaning to our story. So those of you who were here last week, we talked about Rahab, the harlot, the prostitute, and how God used the most unlikely of heroes to be able to uh, save the life of the spies, and she becomes a hero that's picked up later on in Hebrews chapter 11, the faith chapter, as somebody who's a heroine of faith. And so the spies come back to the camp, fresh off a night on Rahab's rooftop, and they say to Joshua in Joshua 2.24, the Lord has given us the whole land, for all the people in the land are terrified of us. And we talked about how sometimes God's works go before him. They had heard all of the great mighty things that God had done, and so they were absolutely terrified of what God might do to them. So the Israelites say, all right, it's time. Joshua gets everybody together, and they leave this acacia grove that they're staying in, and they camp then on the banks of the Jordan River. The Israelite officers go through the camp with particular instructions. And particularly, they say, all right, this is how we're going to do this. Uh, the, the, the priests are going to take the Ark of the Covenant, and they're going to march forward, and you guys are not to get close to it. About a half a mile away, don't get any closer than that to this. Do not come any closer. Now, what's the big deal about that? Well, God specifically, on Sinai, gives Moses the instructions of how he's to build it, what's supposed to go in it. And that he wants this to be a palpable presence of God kind of thing among the Israelites. So throughout their wilderness wanderings, this thing goes with them wherever they go. It is a very, I want to emphasize this, a very, very, very big deal to God. The Ark of the Covenant. Those of you who have seen Raiders of the Lost Ark, okay, you understand what happens. Uh, it will melt your face, right, uh, if you look into it, if you've seen that fictitious movie, uh, and also you will find that in the scriptures, it's also revered as a very big deal. There's a fellow by the name of Uzzah who is struck dead for touching it when he's not supposed to. All he's trying to do is steady it because he thinks it's going to fall, and he puts his hand on it, and he's killed. Another one of my favorites is when the Philistines manage to capture the Ark of the Covenant. They take it into their village, and all of a sudden, uh, they break out into uh, a plague of tumors from head to toe, everybody in the land, and a plague of mice breaks out all over the land. So they go to their own 
uh, you know, kind of spiritualists and say, hey, what's going on here? Why is all this bad stuff happening? They say, it's the ark. You need to take it and give it back to them. And so they pick it up and they bring it back to Israel and they basically say, our bad. Uh, have it back, please. And they make gold uh, sculptures as offerings of tumors. Like picture a gold tumor on your mantle. Like what are you going to do with that? A gold tumor and a gold mouse. Uh, and so they make, they make offerings of gold mice and tumors to kind of commemorate uh, what had gone through. So what you need to understand is this is a huge, huge, huge deal, the Ark of the Covenant, okay? Not to be messed with. Now, Joshua 3, 5 to 8. Here we go. So Joshua tells the people, you can underline this in your Bibles, Purify yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do great wonders among you. In the morning, Joshua said to the priests, lift up the Ark of the Covenant and lead the people across the river. So they started out and they went ahead of the people. The Lord told Joshua, today I will begin to make you a great leader in the eyes of all the Israelites. They will know that I am with you just as I was with Moses. Give this command to the priests who carry the Ark of the Covenant. When you reach the banks of the Jordan River, take a few steps into the river and stop there. Okay, verse 1. Stay blessable. You know what he says in 3.5? He says, purify yourselves. Hey, everybody, get those hands clean. Get your lives together. Because tomorrow God is getting ready to do something great among us. Before they begin their journey across the Jordan River, Joshua asks them to consecrate themselves, purify themselves. Why? Because on so many different occasions, God had great things in store for his people, But he had to withhold it because they started to walk in disobedience. Let us recall why they're in the wilderness to begin with. And Joshua, of course, who was actually a boy when they were liberated from the uh, slavery in in, uh, Egypt, has watched this over and over, this cycle. God sets them free, and then they start worshiping the golden calf. And then things befall them that are unfortunate. They repent and God restores them. And then it turns into grumbling in the wilderness. God provides food, but they don't like it. So they start grumbling. And then God says, you know what? Basically, he force feeds them manna until it starts coming out of their noses. So they repent of that. And then they get back up and off they go. And Joshua's watched this for 40 years of wilderness time. And so he knows that if God is getting ready to do something great, one of the main things, if you really want God to do something great in your life, is you've got to get ready for it. And ready doesn't just mean, ready for anything doesn't just mean, okay, I'm awake. It means I'm consecrated. It means I'm not walking in obedient, disobedience with God. I mean, we see how this unfolds in our daily lives. How God shows untold mercies toward us, even when we're disobedient, that he's slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. But we also, in our Bibles, read that the Scripture's testimony that God will withhold blessing if we walk in disobedience. So if God blesses you with a relationship, you choose not to honor him with it sexually, or it becomes too big of a deal for you, uh, and it becomes the focal point of your entire life rather than God, if it, if it doesn't work out or you find it struggling, don't be surprised. God blesses you with a promotion, but the job becomes your primary passion and it means to materialism rather than a means to generosity. It doesn't mean deeper devotion to God as God would have wanted. It means more selfishness. 
God frees his people from slavery in Egypt, but they then begin to worship the golden calf. They begin to grumble against God. And so there's a message for us as a church. If God's preparing to do great wonders among us, then you know what we need to do? We need to consecrate ourselves. We need to purify ourselves. If you found yourself going, I don't understand why God is saying no to this. I don't understand why God can't, can't answer this particular prayer or whatever. I'm not saying that there's a, a, it's not math. It's not like chemistry. If you mix this and this, then you get this. It's not how God operates most of the time. But it, there is a clear warning in Scripture or an admonition to say, if you really want to take hold of the blessings of God, God is waiting to do great things in your life. You need to get ready for him to do good things in your life, which is not just simply to be awake and available. It is to be pure, to consecrate yourself. So as Joshua says to them here, purify yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do great wonders among you. The first place to look, if you feel like there's resistance to what God could do in your life or you've gotten a no, is not to focus on what you think God did not do. It's to focus on what you may not have done. Or what you might be doing that would be causing this particular kind of thing. Because we are, in fact, owed nothing by God, and yet we owe God everything. God loves to give good gifts to his children, but he isn't going to empower things that are toxic to our faith. And so sometimes the best gift that God gives us is a holy no. And if we want to hear yes, our request should be made with clean hands and a pure heart, which means purifying ourselves because tomorrow might, God might be ready to do great things in our midst. Maybe tomorrow is your day. I got a call uh, this week from a friend of mine uh, who was reading his Bible, and he felt the Spirit of God convict him of something that he had done in his past that he'd never really been very sorry for, frankly. But it was something that was, had gone on years before. I get a text from him. He says, hey, can I call you? I said, sure. Calls me. He says, I've been reading through this. Here's what I read. He reads it out loud. And he goes, man, I feel, it, the, 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 he didn't use this expression, but it's what was happening. When David talks about the hand of the Lord was heavy upon me, that's what was going on. God was, was reaching out to him and, and saying, hey. And he just felt this overwhelming sense of conviction. And he goes, I don't know what to do. And I said, well, first of all, the fact that you, you feel the conviction is good. There are a lot of people that just sin with impunity, and they don't feel bad about it at all. That lets you know that you have a conscience, okay? But be responsive to what God is trying to do. He's calling you to, 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 to seek his forgiveness. And we just basically talked about what it means to repent and what it means to receive the forgiveness of God. And so if that's where you are, I want to encourage you with that admonition and Three, five, that Joshua gives the Israelites. Purify yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do great wonders. We're going to do an entire sermon on this later in the series when they go take on a, a little nation by the name of I, and they get their tails whipped, even though they're a much mightier nation because they hadn't purified themselves. Joshua 3, 9 to 13. Here we go. So Joshua told the Israelites, now listen, I want you to listen for all the times that he says something like, listen tell, anything that involves verbal or speech. Joshua told the Israelites, come and listen. Now come and see. Come and listen to what the Lord your God says. Today you will know that the living God is among you. He will surely drive out the, deep breath, Canaanites, Hittites, Hivites, Perizzites, Girgashites, Amorites, and Jebusites. 
ahead of you. Look, the Ark of the Covenant, which belongs to the Lord of the whole earth, will lead you across the Jordan River. Now choose 12 men from the tribes of Israel, one from each tribe. The priests will carry the Ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth. And as soon as their feet touch the water, the flow of the water will be cut off upstream, and the river will stand up like a wall. Okay? Now, he tells them to come around. He says, everybody, come here. Get everybody together. And listen to what God says. And then he gives them a series of instructions that sound tedious, and they're not a lot of fun to read. Okay? But they're important. Listen carefully. He says, come and listen to what the Lord your God says. That's the task of preaching. It's telling the church, come and listen to what the Lord your God says. It's not just think about how it's going to intersect your life. It's like, no, no, no. Purify yourself. Open your ears. Let's listen to what God is saying. I mean, down to, if he gives us specific instructions like this, down to that, but also we want our ears to be open to where we pay careful attention to what God is saying. Now, he gives them these instructions. We're told how many, from which tribe, who will carry the ark, what they will do, how God will deliver them, all within about two verses. I mean, this thing's packed with instructions. Now, he doesn't always give us specific instructions on how we're supposed to do this or that. However, when we are on a journey or when we are headed into battle, we should listen for God's voice like a bat. We have bats at our house now. Uh, bats, I'm not, I can handle snakes. I've killed snakes and stuff. I, I, didn't, I didn't say that. I've, I've released snake, uh, snakes to their reward, maybe is a way to put it. Um, snakes don't really bother me. I'm not, I'm not like cuddling with them or anything, but I'm not terrified of snakes. I'm not terrified of, of, of animals, really. But I don't like bats. Bats are kind of a, a flying, blood-sucking rat. And, and if you, the way they're portrayed in the movies and stuff is, is pretty nasty. Um, I, can, I can tell you what it was like to walk out and the pest control guy came to the house. And we've always had these little droppings right in front of the front door. And I look around, there's no signs of mice. We we've never seen a mouse. There's no place for him to burrow or anything. I'm going, there's nothing for him to eat here. Can't be mice. What, what is going on? So a pest control guy comes over. He knocks on the door at like 8 o'clock in the morning. I was still in my pajamas. And I go, I go, hi. And he goes, hey, is there anything I can do for you? And I go, yeah, actually. I said, look down there. And I said, what is that? And he goes, droppings. I said, I know. Um, you're the pest control guy. I want to know what's, what it, it's not dog poop. I can tell that. I can tell it's not uh, wolverine poop or, or human, you know, so what do we got here? And we go through the whole thing, and he goes, bat poop. And I look up, and there are two bats right there, right in front of the front door. Now, the funny thing about bats, you've heard the expression blind as a bat. You can't see, right? You know how they get around, right? Sound. Oh, somebody said the magic word, echolocation. That's right. Through their nose and their little evil mouths or whatever, <laughs> they put out noise and it ricochets off things and comes back to them. Like a submarine does under the water. Sends out a little ping. And the way it bounces off teaches them where they are and which direction they're supposed to go and at what speed and all of that. Okay, the phrase blind is a bad exists for a reason. 
because they can't see. The reason I would suggest to you Christians that we need to listen is because you can't always see. Listening is often more important than seeing. And so sometimes it's not as much a matter of, hey, God, show me which direction I should go. It's having your ears open enough to hear God say, go that way, when you can't see. And so one could say, it is better to be blind as a bat than deaf as a doorknob in the kingdom of God. Because if all you do is follow your eyes, based on what you see, you are going to drown in the Jordan River. Okay, if, if, if they just go and they say, you know what, hey, it's really not that important. Why do the priests always get to lead everything? That's not fair. Let's leave the ark here. After all, we're not 100% sure that the river's going to part, so let's leave the ark here, and uh, we'll try swimming across. Because that's what our eyes say. We'll be fine. Ah, much better to listen, Right? God says, no, listen, here's what I'm about to do. I'm about to do this, so here's what I want you to do. I want you to take the priests. I want you to, them to have the, the Ark of the Covenant. They're going to go first. When their foot touches the water, the water is going to pile up, and they're going to walk on, you guys are going to cross on dry ground. Stay a half a mile back. Pick one guy from each tribe to do X and Y, and go. We have difficulty following directions. Let me give you a little, let's do a little uh, drill here, shall we? Take your uh, right foot, wherever you may be, and put it in the air. Just your right foot in the air. Now rotate it clockwise in a circle. Put your right finger in the air while you're doing that, and draw a six. What happened? Your foot went the opposite direction, didn't it? Yep. It's different than uh, rubbing your belly and patting your head. See, you can do that. Some people can do it. You can't do that. It's a scientific fact. There's never been a human that can do it. Your brain's not wired to do that. Right? I want to suggest to you sometimes, like, you're here and you're doing this, and you're, it's going in a particular direction, and then at some point, it just starts going the other direction. That's a signifier that you just heard a different, you're listening to different instructions. Somewhere, you started listening to something else or stopped listening. And it is impossible to be getting all your instructions from the world and keep your life going in the right direction. Does that make sense? We have to be good listeners to the Word of God. We have to be humble enough to go, God, teach me what you want me to do. We have to be willing to do whatever He asks us to do. Noah, I want you to build an ark. In the middle of the desert? Yes, build it. Here's how I want the dimensions to be. Here's the kind of wood I want it to be made out of. Here's this, here's that. Are you kidding me? Yes, I'm not kidding you at all. Trust me, you're going to like this because it's going to rain a while. I mean, you know that it doesn't rain here a whole lot, right? Yeah, I'm aware of that. It's going to rain. Build the ark. Listening is a good idea for Noah. And I just wonder if some of the struggles I have isn't because, you know, I got things going in a particular direction, and then I have somebody say, oh, no, hey, put your other hand in the air and draw six. Okay. And I don't realize all of a sudden now everything's going this way. So something to consider. There's an African proverb that says, don't look at where you fell, look at where you slipped. And you might want to go back if you're struggling in life and take a look at, okay, maybe I didn't 
where did I fall? Don't look at where that happened. Look where the slip took place. Look where you started drawing the six. Joshua 3, 14 to 17. The moment of truth. Here we go. So the people left their camp to cross the Jordan. And the priests who were carrying the Ark of the Covenant went ahead of them. It was harvest season and the Jordan was overflowing its banks. But as soon as the feet of the priests who were carrying the Ark touched the water at the river's edge, the water above that point began backing up a great distance away at a town called Adam, which is near Zarethan. And the water below that point flowed to the Dead Sea until the riverbed was dry. Then all the people crossed over near the town of Jericho. Meanwhile, the priests who were carrying the Ark of the Lord's Covenant stood on dry ground in the middle of the river, riverbed as the people passed by. They waited there until the whole nation of Israel had crossed the Jordan on dry ground. Step in. You ever try to teach a kid how to dive? And they get up there and <laughs> like, just, just put your hands over your head and just fall in. And so they do it, and they'll stand there like this for hours, you know, threatening to jump in. And your parent can tell them, you're not going to die, I promise you. You're literally inches from the ground, or from the water. I'm not going to let you drown, but you have, to, you have to do that if you actually want to learn how to dive. Okay. Or how about a high dive? You ever watch people try to go off the high dive? And they run, and... And then they stop at the end because they can't trust that they're actually going to be able to do it without killing themselves. I know it can feel like that, right? It's, he tells them, he goes, hey, guys, trust me. Take the Ark of the Covenant and walk into the water. Wait in the water. God's going to trouble the water, he says. <laughs> and as soon as that foot hits the water, everything, trust me, is going to peel back. And you're going to be on dry ground. I think it's very instructive and it's beautiful that God says, look, take a step. I'll do the rest. Take that step of faith. Put your foot on the water. I did wonder what kind of step they took. They just put a toe in, see what happened. Did they just keep marching into the water? I've done both of those, right? God says, I want you to do this. You need to make this change in your life. You need to make this change in your ministry. You need to do this as a father. You need to do this as a husband. I want you to do this because his word convicts me as I read it. Okay, look, I will make a way for you, but you, you're going to need to put your foot in the water. And sometimes I find myself going, you know, you might be in that same, in that same camp. But what he does here is so powerful. During the time of Moses, God had parted the waters before the Israelites actually stepped in. Moses had to hit it with his rod. But that's different than getting in the water yourself. This is different. This text would call us to take whatever steps God asks us to take. Even if the only thing you see in front of you is water. It's water right now. But God did not call you to go through there to drown you. He called you into the river so he could part it, so that you could walk through on dry ground. The Ark of the Covenant, the power and presence of God, the symbol of the power and the presence of God going before them. And then standing there in the middle of the river as the river obeys the word of God. 
Stand up. Now, it says in here that it was that time of the year when the river's overflowing its banks. Of course, God's going to pick that time. It's a much better illustration when it's half dried up. It says, no, 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 this is harvest time. So the river is absolutely almost flooding. It's at flood stage. And right then, he says, go ahead, you take the ark, and as soon as the priests put their foot in the water, it'll stop. You've got to remember that the one who speaks to us is the same one who controls everything, the winds, the waves, the creation. Of, I mean, it controls absolutely everything. Now, here's a word of, of caution. Remember the video from the beginning. Sometimes we project and we take steps that we want to take not steps God asks us to take. So that goes back to listening. Sometimes we look at things and uh, we become armchair gypsies, palm readers. When we can see that what we do and what we're sensing, we really want to do something. And so we kind of, we, we pray ourselves into it and ask God to say amen. And then we walk in and we step into the water and it doesn't go anywhere. This is why we got to go back and listen and really sharpen our listening skills and test it with things like, first of all, Scripture. Godly counsel is not a bad thing. Praying is not a bad thing. Time is not a bad thing. Consecration as we're making decisions. Because what I've found is that sometimes if, if there's impurity in one's life that clogs the ears, makes it harder to hear God sometimes. And so as you do it, before you step in, get clarity. And when you do, by all means, step in the water, obey the promptings of the Holy Spirit of God. I don't know if you know this, but there was an earthquake this week. It's been a very rumbly week here in Southern California, 7.1, 6.4. Those are not, those are not little... Um, no, there's nothing to shake a stick at. That's, that's, those are pretty serious earthquakes. Thankfully, uh, no one died, uh, and it happened in a pretty unpopulated area. Uh, the biggest earthquake I've ever been through was the Northridge quake. I happened to be driving a car. It was 4.30 in the morning in 1994. Now, you're going, why were you driving a car at 4.30 in the morning? I had a, a car full of college guys. I was pledging a fraternity, and we were at UCLA, you know, blessing the school. Our, our arch rivals, I went to Pepperdine, so we hate UCLA. Um, if anybody went to UCLA in here, we love you, but not your school. So we, uh, I'm driving a car in front of UCLA, 4.30 in the morning. I'm on Sunset Boulevard, literally right as I'm passing. I look to the right, I see the UCLA letters in that kind of Art Deco-y, you know, lame script that they put everywhere. And I'm driving forward, and all of a sudden it's like somebody has grabbed the wheel of the car and just shakes it. This is 15 miles from the epicenter of the earthquake. And, and somebody grabbed the wheel and was jerking it uncontrollably back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Lights start flashing everywhere. All the transformers in Los Angeles are blowing up. I pull over to the side of the road, which actually was on the wrong side of the road at the time, because that's where the car was ended, had ended up. We were over on the left side. And all of us were like, what the heck happened? All of a sudden, water starts pouring down the street. All the fire hydrants had blown off. All the water mains were broken. 6.7. All of Los Angeles went dark. Here's a picture I'm going to show you. This is what it looked like from the Griffith Observatory. 
at night that night. It was creepy, because you're used to L.A. having lights, right? Nightlife, boom, boom, boom. That's what it looked like. That's from Griffith Observatory. They uh, got call after call after call after call. People panicked because they looked up and they saw that creepy sky, and they thought the end of the world was happening. Well, after a while, the Griffith Observatory people realized that no, they just have never seen the Milky Way before. That's the Milky Way over the, over the city. <laughs> I've never seen it either. As it turns out, two-thirds of the U.S. population and one-fifth of the world can't see it because it's too bright. Um, we've talked mostly about listening, but I do think this, sisters and brothers, those mighty acts of God that had given God his reputation that we talked about last week with Rahab, uh, sometimes those great things and earthquakes parting rivers, you know, passing over, victories in battle. Let me give you something you can do today. Write down some of those things where God won a mighty battle in your life. Make your own list. God did, did this for me. God did this. I saw him do this. I heard him say this. Uh, he redeemed this broken part of my life. He cleansed me of this sin. He, and just make a list. And you know what you're going to find? You're going to see things that you've never seen before. There's an old hymn I used to like as a kid. As a kid, we, I grew up in an a cappella church, meaning no instruments were in the church. Um, so all you could do is hear people singing. There was an old hymn called On Jordan's Stormy Banks. Anybody by chance remember that? Yeah, there's like two, three of you, yeah. People that grew up in the same tribe. All right. On Jordan's stormy banks I stand and cast a wishful eye to Canaan's fair and happy land where my possessions lie. We will rest in the fair and happy land by and by, just across on the evergreen shore, sing the song of Moses in the land by and by and dwell with Jesus evermore. That's how the hymn went. And I got to think to myself, Joshua was a slave in Egypt as a boy. He goes halfway up Sinai with Moses, where Moses gets the Ten Commandments, the instructions to build the ark. He comes back down. He wanders around in the wilderness with the Israelites. He's, remember, he's Moses' wingman through the whole experience. When it's time for Moses to die, he takes Moses up to the top of a mountain and lets Moses cast a wishful eye at Canaan. He says, you're not going to be able to enter, but I want you to see it. And old man Moses goes to the top, and he casts that wishful eye. And I wonder if he didn't have an experience like this, where he saw finally all the promises of God getting ready to be fulfilled, that it wasn't just about liberation from slavery, it was about the deliverance from that to a new reality, a new land, a new way of life. And so Joshua now takes over as leader, and all this is happening, and I've often thought, as, he, as they cross the Jordan there, maybe he sets his eye on the gates of Jericho, where he's heading next week. Battle of Jericho. And he finally sees it. That all the listening that has been going on now becomes sight. Ah, here we are. 
you know, when those spies went to, uh, we went to visit Rahab, it's not like Joshua didn't know what was there. Remember, he'd been there himself as a spy. It was like he wanted to double check or something. So they do. Now's the time. They cross the river right to the edge of Jericho. And that's where we'll pick up next week. But I want you, sister and brother, this morning as we continue to journey through the book of Joshua, sometimes when we don't know why something is happening or what steps he wants us to take, back up, go back to the story of God and realize that God gives meaning to our story. Stay blessable. Listen carefully. Step in. Rinse and repeat. Stay blessable. Listen carefully. Step in. Stay blessable. Listen carefully. Step in. Right now we're going to take the Lord's Supper. I'd like to ask those of you who are going to be serving uh, the elements, go ahead and take your spots. Uh, and as we do, I'm going to ask you to just kind of drag the magnet over the sand of your life and see where uh, it might be time for you to consecrate yourself. Maybe that's it. Maybe, maybe it's, I feel like I'm living and walking with Jesus as faithfully as I can, but I need to listen a little bit more intently than I have before. Or maybe it's all of that. I'm just like the kid on the diving board who's got his hand over his head and can't find a way to step in then resolve that this is going to be the day that you're going to take the step. This is going to be the day that I put my foot on the, on the water. I walk in. I wade into the water and have faith that God will trouble the water. Let us pray.